There we go. We are live. <laughs> uh, welcome, everyone, to the Wildcast to MGE's podcast. I uh, feel so honored uh, to be able to uh, uh, invite and welcome uh, a, a dear friend for many years, Dr. Nava Silton, uh, to our podcast. Welcome, Nava. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So those of you who do not have the pleasure of knowing Nava, she is a professor of psychology at Marymount Manhattan College. She has an unbelievable resume. I'm just going to run through it really, really quickly just to give you a sense of the level of person we're going to be having a conversation with. So uh, Dr. Silton graduated from Cornell um, and afterwards she completed her master's and her doctoral work in developmental psychology at Fordham, Fordham University. And she looks at the interfaith uh, between religion, interface really, between religion and health, and has done a lot of important work in the areas of disabilities and in children's media. She's worked at Nickelodeon, Sesame Workshop. She's consulted for Netflix, Blue's Clues, I love Blue's Clues, Media Kids. She's appeared often on Fox 5 News and other media outlets like NBC, The Good Day Show, uh, Good Day New York, Huffington Post. And she speaks about relationships, which is what we're going to be speaking about today. She speaks about child development and she has amazing tips on dating and improving your sense of self, what we call self-esteem, and how to just be more positive in life. Uh, Nava has run several dating weekends and events at various synagogues and recently developed a new card game called Beshert. You can get it at West Side Judaica. And uh, Beshert is where people can ask their dating uh, questions. Oh, excuse me. You can ask interesting questions to your date when you're out on a date. I actually think it's such a great idea. She's written a children's comic book series. She's wrote and produced an off-Broadway musical, Addie and Uno, taught college and graduate courses at Fordham, Turo, and Hunter. She's edited six textbooks, written more than 36 peer-reviewed... When do you do all this, Nava? <laughs> Nava is also... The daughter of a rabbi. Well, that explains some of it. And she has five children, Bli'ai and Hara. She literally works hard to make the world a better place. I want to thank my good friend, Alan Zeitlin, for putting this together. Thank you, Scott, for working on the uh, on the podcast. And Dr. Nava, thank you so much for being here. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so honored to be here and to be speaking with you. So let's jump right into it. Uh, I'm getting a lot of complaints from MGE participants and just others in their 20s and 30s been dating, kind of a dating slump since COVID, right? I mean, people obviously are going out now. During COVID, people weren't. People getting a little more careful again, I guess, because of the variant. But people were reluctant to go out and they got sick of Zoom dates Tell us some of the tips that you might have for people who are feeling like in a little blah in terms of the, being depleted by dating. I'm a very big fan of creativity on dates. And, you know, for those who are worried about the variant and they're back on Zoom dates, there are ways to make Zoom dates really fun. So you can, you know, have a coffee date. You each bring your own coffee to the Zoom date. You can make fun cocktails and have a Zoom date with your cocktails. Uh, you can do a paint night together. You can watch a film and critique it together. Um, you could do a virtual museum tour together on a, on a date. Um, you could do Iron Chef and each of you make a meal and see whose turns out better. 
There's so many different creative ways to try to make Zoom dates come alive. Um, and uh, that really was the impetus behind my Bashir game, um, which was to make uh, dates on Zoom or dates in person a lot more meaningful and a lot more fun. And so I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about the game later, but any ways that you can kind of liven up the dates and uh, make them meaningful, learn a little bit about one another and do some fun, fun things together. Thank you. And, and what would you say to people that are dating in person? In other words, not Zoom, but, you know, unfortunately, a lot of those big events that New York City always had, MGE had, I mean, we're back, thankfully, and we're doing more and more events, but, you know, they dried up a lot um, and they haven't fully come back. What do you tell someone who's just hasn't really been meeting a lot of people um, and wants to start getting out there more and get more, just more dates going, you know, just more action? Yeah, I think that, you know, little by little, some shoals are, are you know, introducing some new events. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, taking walks, uh, grabbing some food and, and doing a picnic, uh, trying to uh, kind of pursue dates where you can be outside and still really enjoy each other's company, watching, you know, the, you know, the sun go down, whatever it might be, but things that could be uh, meaningful. And again, um, for the Bashir cards, people are using these a lot on um, in-person dates too, just to really kind of uh, forge connections and bonds in a kind of quicker way um, because they've lost out on a lot of time because of COVID. Right. And, and, and just in terms of dating, um, let's say meeting more people, I'm getting some complaints from some of our participants. They're just, you know, their Rolodex, so to speak, has been somewhat depleted. They're just not meeting. In other words, that's a great idea if someone fixed you up. I mean, are you a big advocate of just maybe calling some friends? Who do yeah. you know? Um, you know, because I, I think we, we need we need to increase the um the volume, I think. Absolutely. I would say that's something I often recommend to people. Pick four or five couples that you're close with mm -hmm. and have a conversation with them. Talk to them about what your interests are. Talk about what kinds of things, you know, you're looking for in a partner and what kind of three qualities describe you as a person. Really get your these couples to start to think about you uh, when they go to show, when they can connect with, you know, uh, their friends or loved ones, just so you're kind of on their minds. And I think that's a really good thing to try to do. Um, sometimes when I run singles events, I say, you know, bring someone that uh, you you have never dated or 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 have dated and it just didn't work out, but you think might be a really great person for someone else in your age bracket. So mm -hmm. start to really um, think about your friends, think about relatives, think about loved ones and friends that could um, could set you up and have you in mind. And I think that's, that can go a long way. That's a great <clears throat> practical uh, approach. And I had this idea, I never really launched it, but this is really for any of the couples listening to this married couples listening to this podcast now it's such you're in such a um position to help your single friends uh, you know i'm older so i i my wife and i always try to fix up people we've been doing this for many many years but i've gotten to an age where i don't really hang out with people in their 20s and 30s so much i do mg participants and my kids <laughs> okay but but i'm um, you know if you are in your 20s or 30s and you are married, I always thought if we could get every Jewish couple within the 24 months of their marriage 
to say, I'm going to commit to setting up five of my friends. I love it. You know what I'm saying? That would be like a, a game changer because that those are the individuals I think. So anyone who's listening, just try to think of some single friends of yours. Um, and even if you think that, oh, they're so popular, they have so many, it's not always the case. I see that many, many times with men and women. So anyway, I'm just going to throw that out there. Do you, Abba, do you think COVID has resulted in people becoming more marriage-minded or um, has it just put people more into a slump? They don't want to move on. I think that uh, COVID caused a lot of people to feel more lonely and more isolated. I think it also gave people a little more time to be more self-reflective. Um, and for that reason, I think uh, a lot of individuals have kind of um, reevaluated their priorities. And for that reason, I think a lot of people are becoming more marriage-minded during mm. um, this time frame. And it, and for that reason, it's a wonderful time for married friends to really look out for your um, for your single friends. And whether you become a uh, matchmaker on Saw You at Sinai, or I just ran um, a, a Bashert event uh, that, thank God, went really well. Um, but just trying to think about creative ways to um, get you know, your friends with, with other potential partners is a really lovely thing to do, especially during this time. Yeah. And so, so crisis does, I think, get more of us thinking, you know, long-term. I remember after 9-11, there was a record-breaking number of engagements mm. in the six months following 9-11, you know, because it's a reminder how life is short. We want to move on. Right. You know, so um, that's amazing. We, you know, we had, Shlomo Gason from, from Zusha had both of the musicians, uh, Zacharia and Shlomo, big fans of their, of their work, um, just two weeks back. And he said that when he, um, that, that dating is really a learning experience, that we should not look at, at dating as like, a, a, like a date is like successful, unsuccessful, but more like this is a process. What's your feeling on that? And and I, I, my my new book, I think you know about it. I just put out a new book, The 40-Day Challenge. So I have a chapter in there about, about being honest with ourselves. Do you find that people um, are just beating themselves up way too critical of themselves? You know, I could have done this differently. Or, or is it just the opposite? You know, they play the blame game. It's always the other person's fault and they're unwilling to accept responsibility. How do people, how do we find the right balance in terms of dating and being honest with ourselves? First of all, I want to say that your book is amazing. Uh, I uh, have commented on it in numerous ways because I'm a huge fan. So anyone who has not yet purchased it, please look out for it. Shameless um, plug. Thank you. Yes. Um, and, you know, something I want to mention here is um, there's a concept in psychology and they use it a lot in health psychology and it's called the locus of control. And there's a distinction between an internal locus of control and an external locus of control. Someone with an internal locus of control will take personal responsibility when things don't quite go their way. And people with an external locus of control will blame it on God, will blame it on the outside world, external forces. And what we find is that when you have an external locus of control and you blame it on the outside world and on other entities, that's really not very helpful. Right. So if you blame every part of your relationship on on the other person and on, on um, 
other aspects of the outside world, that's not really going to be functional for you. Um, having an internal locus of control and taking personal responsibility, reflecting on the relationship, seeing what you might have done a little bit differently um, could be a good thing. But we don't want to have too much of an internal locus of control, right? We don't want to blame everything in ourselves and take this huge onus or burden upon ourselves. We want to be very thoughtful about it and really have a balanced approach. So you can say where you felt your partner might have been able to do things differently, but you can also be self-reflective about your own actions during the relationships. And what I find in relationships is that people tend to follow the same kind of dysfunctional patterns in relationships. They tend to keep kind of having this repeated um, pattern that often is not functional for them. So what I would say is try to have mostly an internal locus of control. Take personal responsibility for the things that, looking back, you might have done a little bit differently. Um, and uh, and try to look at what patterns you seem to fall into in relationships and try to switch it up. Try to change it up a little bit. Maybe it's dating a different kind of person or maybe it's, you know, putting a different level of commitment or time and engagement in the relationship. But really be reflective and self, um, you know, um, you know, just really think through it um, before you enter into your new relationship. And the last thing I would say is um, every relationship has the opportunity to give us such life lessons that we can then apply to another relationship. So right, that's, that's kind of what Shlomo was saying. Yeah. Don't lose out on those, you know, kind of um, pearls of wisdom that you glean from your, from your previous relationships, because each relationship has the opportunity to teach us something about the world and something about ourselves. Yeah. Hold on to those, collect them and, and use them in your next relationship. Yeah. It's listen, that's, it's such good advice. It's hard, I guess, when you're frustrated to be yeah. able to learn something positive from a situation didn't turn out like you wanted to. I want to go back to your internal versus external locus of control. I think it's so powerful um, I, I wrote this in my first book. I quoted a study. I don't know if you've heard of this study. University of Pennsylvania compared the top 1% neurosurgeons in the United States to the bottom 1%. It's very powerful. And what they found the fundamental difference was not the medical school they attended, their level of intelligence, their talent. It was exactly what you touched on. The top, um, the, the bottom 1% blamed mistakes, problems, errors in the surgeries, in the operating room, on lighting, poor nursing, poor nurses, <laughs> everything but themselves, they externalized the blame. The top 1% kept asking themselves, what did I do wrong? How could I have been doing better? I just, that's so powerful. And, and it's used all the time in health psychology. So people who are, um, you know, who are unfortunately going through illness, um, they often do much better when they take personal responsibility for their health, for their eating, um, and as opposed to blaming everything on the outside world. So it's a huge thing in the health literature. And of course, we can't control, God forbid, we can't control illness and those types of things, but we can take personal responsibility and make personal choices yeah. that can be very useful for us. Yeah. Can I share a piece of Torah on this? It's so powerful. Sure. I saw this in the writings of Rabbi Sachs of Blessed Memory. And he had this very, I put this in my first book also, he had this amazing line from Lech Lecha, when God told Abraham to go. So he told Abraham to leave three things. He says, Lech Lecha, Me'artzacha, from your land, Mimoladcha, from your birthplace, Umi Avicha, from, from your father's home. Yeah. And Rabbi Sachs brilliantly said that in the 20th century, there were three intellectual giants 
who all attributed our um, lives to one of these three forces. He talked. He spoke about Marx, Marx, Karl Marx, who attributed so much of our behavior to the land owner, to the classes, to the bourgeoisie proletariat, and he says that's what. God is telling Avram Artsacha from your land, don't blame it on the economy, on the land. Mimoladcha, that was Spinoza, he said. Mm. Spinoza believed in genetic predeterminism. You can't really control, question free will, because we're just the product of the way God physically, genetically, biologically created us. And Umibetavicha, he said, was Freud from your father's home. <laughs> Just blame everything on your parents. I'm talking to a psychologist. That's very um, Freudian. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. And he said, you know, Oedipus complex. He wrote a he had this whole thing. So I just thought it was a it's a it's a drash, obviously. Uh, you know, it's 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 a homiletical interpretation of the verse, but you know, it's um there are people who beat themselves up a lot, and then there are people who externalize. Now, you're not advocating beating yourself up, obviously, but you want that locus of control to be internal, not external. Right. Great. Great. And, and a balance, you know, somewhere of a balance. You can say where external forces have influenced the situation, but the more you can take on more of an internal locus of control, but not to an extreme, the more healthy the situation will be. Yeah. And, and are you surprised that we've gotten to a point where singles often will not date each other with opposing political views. What, what's your feeling? Can you, would you set up a Republican with a Democrat? So I have set up many, many people and this comes up a lot now. And I really, I really have not heard it really before 2016. I really had not even heard that as a question uh, when I would set two people up. But I think, you know, with the tensions and the, you know, very kind of extreme political platforms and platitudes that people take, I'm not shocked. And I want to I want to bring something else up in psychology. When when you look at the psychology of liking, right? There are three main ingredients, right, that um, that are relevant to uh, the psychology of liking. One is proximity, so geographic nearness. By the way, if I look down, it's because I'm taking notes. You, you okay? I've Absolutely. already I've already written down like three or four amazing things you've said. So, it's like, <laughs> so I'm sorry, three things, psychology of liking, proximity. Yes, the three ingredients for this in the psychology of liking. So one is geographic nearness, proximity. You need to be close to the person. In this day and age, Zoom, you know, can work if you can have that familiarity and connection with the person. But you need to first meet the person and have that geographic nearness, that proximity. Number two, you need physical attraction. Mm -hmm. And of course, things like um, honesty and humor and those types of things can really enhance a physical attraction, but you need some level of physical attraction. Of course, in the psychology literature, literature we talk about symmetrical faces and average faces. The idea being that, right, you want someone who's healthy and can, um, you know, allow for uh, for progeny later on in life. Um, so, physical attraction is thought to be related to being able to have uh, kids in later life. And the third uh, ingredient is similarity. And so when we talk about political views and platitudes and those types of things, what I often will say to couples is yes, you know, similarity is a huge ingredient that is necessary for liking, but you don't have to be similar on every single dimension, right? So there are, th there are various demographic factors, age, religious status, education level, smoking or non-smoking. You know, there are lots of things that we can be similar to a partner on, to a, similar to a partner or different. Um, if you have different political views, that's okay. 
But the point is, is that you don't want too many things that are dissimilar. So if you have different political views, but you are of similar age, similar educational level, similar values for the future, those types of things, then it can absolutely work out. But you don't want to be different on too many of these dimensions and these demographic factors. You know what's interesting? First of all, thank you. That's really excellent and helpful. I was going to move from that question. It's not too far of a shift to ask you how you feel about differing religious levels. Because I guess on the similarity front, yeah, you know, how different can people be religiously and still make it work? I, I absolutely relate that to the similarity dimension as well. And another thing, you know, that I find is that when I uh, set people up and when you look at the literature, they say that you can have, um, you know, kind of uh, complementary personalities. So one of you might be an extrovert and the other might be an introvert. That's fine but you wanna have aligned values. You want your values to be the same and or, or close or similar. And so what I would say when it comes to religious values and, and religious practice, you might have different religious you know, perspectives and you might have different religious observance levels, but are your values aligned? Mm-hmm. Are your values for what you want for your children or what you want in terms of um, your future life goals, are those similar? And that can relate a tremendous amount to religiosity. So I think that, you know, other ingredients that are supremely important for relationships are things like communication, compromise. So I think it's not, you know, I think that couples who have different religious uh, levels or observances could work, but they need to ensure that enough of their values are aligned and that they communicate, can communicate and be open to compromise and making the relationship work. Uh, and, and if I could just jump in, how, how, open would you be let's say if you were a therapist brought in on a couple that was dating and they said listen we love each other we want to make this work but i have i come from a very orthodox family um or i don't come from an orthodox family. i become more observant i become more religious and my partner here does not i mean i can tell you what i've advised i'm curious from a therapist's perspective um how you would advise a couple in terms of that similarity issue yeah, you know, I think I think I would really first start with that value question. Tell me what you want your futures to look like. What do you picture? If I were to take you 10 years from now, what is what is your kind of utopian or ideal life look like? What does it look like in terms of family? What does it look like in terms of where you dive in? What your week weekday and week, you know, weekend look like? What does it look like? Are we seeing shared visions when it comes to the couple or are they so disparate? that it really is not something that could be workable. So I think that would be the first place I would start, but I would love to hear what you advise. Well, so, I mean, I, I, I'm at, let's say that person or one of the two people don't, don't have that. So, so neatly, you know, thought out. In other words, I've had situations where, I mean, I'll give you one, this is so many uh, modern Orthodox backgrounds, you know, withered a bit, faded a bit, came back a little more, started coming to MG, got a little more excited about Yiddishkeit, meets a girl, a young woman from a reform background who is finding her way into it, but is not really sure whether, you know, how far she wants to take this in terms of her religious observance. Does she, she likes Shabbos, but there's a big difference between lighting candles on Friday night and going to an MG Shabbat dinner and actually being committed to not, you know, doing the malachot on yeah. Shabbat. Um, can, can can such a couple make it work? So, I mean, I've always said, I'm curious your thoughts on this. You know, I can't as a rabbi 
counsel compromise on the purely religious level. I can't say, oh, it's okay for you, young men. I know you're keeping Shabbos and putting on tefillin right now, but instead of putting on tefillin every day, just do it once a month. And instead of, you know, you know, not, uh, you need to get in the car, you know, on Friday nights and Saturday, you know, like that's, that's a difficult thing. That's kind of where I think the therapist and the rabbi part ways. <laughs> yeah. um, but, but um, I have helped couples get married who were very different when the person that is less observant is really open yeah. and the person who is more observant knows how to communicate and is a respectable kind of individual and knows how to give space to another individual. Because if that person can't do that, I don't care how open the other person is, they're going to end up not, it's not going to work. You and know? I, I would add one word to what you just said. And I, I think that's, uh, I, I think you're right on. And I would say exactly the same thing. I would say respect. Does the individual who is less religious have deep respect for the dedication that the other individual has, you know, for their religious practice and their religious observance? And if so, if they have deep respect and are willing to go along with it, even if they themselves might practice a little bit differently, I think that's a huge component. Do they have the respect? Do they have the, you know, appreciation for the level of commitment and dedication that the other person has. And if they have that and that openness, I think that that's very workable. And of course, communication, compromise uh, are key, key elements to any functioning or healthy relationship. Yeah, you know, my mother of blessed memory used to always talk about respect. She always says, I loved your father so much, but there's a respect and that, that really needs to be there. And sometimes that's an issue when you have varying religious levels, because somebody could think, well, you know, I respect people who observe like this and she or he only observes like that, you know, and that, that could definitely get in the way. But, um, you know, there was this one couple years ago who, um, you know, I said to the woman and she was from the reform background, amazing young woman. And she was coming around a lot and she was really growing, but she wasn't really, you know, bought in necessarily on being fully committed religiously. And here she's dating this guy who was. And I said to her, like I was talking alone with her and she was asking me for my personal advice, not as a couple, but as, and I said to her, look, you have to fall in love with the Yiddish guy because you can't simply do this for him. You know, it's not like um, rolling the toothpaste tube or squeezing the toothpaste tube. You work that out. Some people are rollers, some people are squeezers. You got to work it out. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I, it's the, keeping Shabbos, keeping kosher, you know, spending $30,000 a year on Jewish day school education. Right. I mean, these are serious life commitments. And I said to her, how resentful are you going to become if you don't really want this for you? Yeah. That you're doing like, you're going to get into a fight about something else. This is going to come out. And, um, and I would only counsel you to move forward with him if you independently are interested and maybe like you said uh nava maybe like you said uh can i call you nava i should call you please 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 we're friends so like but um i felt like like she's putting herself in a precarious situation if she herself was not invested spiritually yeah i i do think that there needs to be some level of uh 
spiritual and religious engagement on both parts uh, if there is that disparity in, in the couple. Um, but again, there's some people who, uh, you know, I've seen a lot of couples who've made it work. Uh, they come from very different backgrounds. And, um, you know, it's interesting, my mother, um, who's incredible, um, she ran a conversion class for many years um, for Jews by Choice. And she often found an interesting thing. She often found that the um, the, the Jew and the couple, the, um, you know, the uh, Jew from birth um, was less religious after her class than the Jew by choice, because the Jew by choice was really, you know, assuming all of these different mitzvot and observances and practices, and they really fell in love with Yahadut, with Judaism. And so I think that sometimes when you have that learning and you have that engagement, you have that investment, when you invest in something, you fall in love with it. Yeah. So with some of these couples yeah. being able to, you know, invest and learn more about Yahadut might also allow them to really get more, um, you know, interested, engaged and um, observant, which I know you do so beautifully at MJ. No, but it's so funny. You just reminded me of this other couple that came years ago. Oh, this is so classic of what you just related about your mother's experience. And, her yeah. and Kolika vote to her. For, for Is she still teaching that? Uh, she did for many, many, many years, wow. but she's retired wow. now. <laughs> so there was, so it was, it was this Kalka vote to her. There was this couple who came, and I remember she was completely out of like the Jewish world, like, not like <laughs> like completely from another part of the country. Had, had met very few Jews growing up, and she was in a very serious relationship with this Jewish guy who was not observant and very blah about his Judaism. Nice guy, and I remember he brought her. He brought her to the class, and I remember she sat at the table. If you've been in the blue room, you know we have like a table, and then yeah. you have the couch. Yeah. So like the couch potatoes always sit on the couch. He sat on the couch. He was like sleeping within 10 minutes of the class. She was all stereoid. She was like, yeah. wow, this stuff's amazing. Philosophy, and God, spirituality. I was like – and then um, pretty soon, like, you know, the relationship kept coming. He stopped coming to the class. She continued, and they ended up breaking up. Mm. Why? He wasn't serious enough religiously. Right. He wasn't serious enough religiously. And he was just doing it to placate some parent or grandparent who didn't want him marrying someone outside of the faith. And she's like, if I'm going to convert, I'm going to do this because I believe in it and I like it. So that that's a very interesting kind of experience. Um, I'm going to shift gears. Um, I, I often use these um, podcasts for selfish purposes. And I have, a, I have a particular issue, and my whole family knows it, and I think a lot of us are plagued by yeah. um, our inability to live life in the present. Yep. Um, and this technology, this phone has just made it worse, especially when so much of your professional success is dependent on social media like at MGE, Facebook and Instagram. And I mean, it's just endless. Um, how do you get people to live life now? So there are so many different things that um, I would recommend. So just to start off, I would say, you know, focus on the beautiful things in life. You know, you might walk down the same street every single day, but actually take a mindful walk down that street again. Notice the post office that you never noticed. Notice the beautiful, you know, um, flowers, uh, you know, on the side of the street. Notice every little thing. Be mindful about the beautiful things in this world. And actually, you mentioned a UPenn study. Martin Seligman, a very famous uh, positive psychologist, um, 
did a very famous study where he looked at three different groups of people. He said, I'm going to take one group. I want you to think of three positive things that happen during your day. I'm going to take another group. I want you to think of three neutral things that happen during your day. And then my third group, three negative things that happen to your, during your day. And over a one month period, I want you to journal those three things. And he measured life satisfaction, happiness, all of those things before the month, and then measured them post-test afterwards. And he found that the group, the, the group that shared just three positive things that happened during the day, someone opened the door for me at CVS when I was go, coming in with all five of my children. Uh, they gave me an extra cookie at Starbucks or whatever it might be whatever might be positive in your mind, jot down those three things. And that living in the present and that noting what you're grateful for is going to have a huge impact on your life satisfaction and your happiness. Just over one month period, they saw robust changes in happiness and life satisfaction. Wow. So focusing on those beautiful things, focusing on those positive things in your day, they say smiling right? Just taking a moment, if you're in an unfortunate mood, um, taking a moment and smiling in the mirror, the, that movement of your facial muscles is going to actually make you happier. And I also say eat bananas and eat turkey. By the, by the way, that's day eight of the 40 day challenge. I called it smile. Ah. Literally, it's exactly what it put. But, but what were you just saying? The next thing I cut uh, you off. Bananas and turkey um, also have um, a form of serotonin in turkey. It's tryptophan. So those are kind of happy foods. So if you're feeling down, a, a banana or some turkey. Really? Yeah, absolutely. I did not know that. Okay. Yeah. Um, what, if, what if you're like a miserable person? And you never take notice of any of the wonderful things that happen in your life, but you eat crazy amounts of bananas and turkey. Hey, that would be a good experimental study. I would like to see that. <laughs> I would like to get the control group. Yes. Um, I would like to get the control group for that. Okay. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, you alluded to this in your question. Turn off your TV. Shut off your phone. Savor the moment. You know, it's one thing, you know, I, I, as a parenting child development um, speaker on, on many different platforms, people ask me all the time about screen time. And the first thing I say to them is kids are watching everything we do, right? So when we walk into our apartment and we're coming home from work, are we immediately on our devices? When we're at, sitting at the dinner table, are we on our devices? Are we telling them to get off their you know, devices, but we ourselves are totally, totally connected to our devices. Right. So take an hour or two and turn off the TV, turn off the iPad, turn off Alexa, and really take the moments to see how much more time you have in your night when you're not completely tethered to your machinery or your uh, screens. Um, and of course, some people are into yoga, some people are into Zumba. Mm -hmm. Some people are into mindfulness. There's this wonderful um, researcher that talks about something called intensati. If every morning you can just take four minutes and think about what your goals and your intentions are for the day. What are my four goals? What are my two or even one goal for the day? What do I hope to accomplish today? Just what that is it called? Of, in, intensa, what is it so called? intensati is a kind of exercise that combines intention and movement. Um, but this is one thing in that practice that they talk uh -huh. about. You can do a mindful extra four minute mindful exercise in the morning. Um, and intensati, um, what they do is they do like a Zumba move, but you say a positive affirmation while you do the move. So mm -hmm. I'm good enough. I'm strong enough. 
I'm Wonder Woman, but telling yourself these positive affirmations and really, um, again, focusing on the positivity of the day instead of the negativity can also go um, along. And what's the movement? Why is the movement coupled with the positive, let's say, statement that you're making? It's the combination of the two together are thought to be really helpful. As we know, with exercise, it releases endorphins. So it's a kind of that that happy drug, right? Endorphins are that, you know, kind of runner's high. And so combining exercise with a positive affirmation, with a positive statement um, is considered to be a very strong combination. So that's something that everyone can do just for a few minutes every day. Um, okay, so, and- so, so far we've got the walk, the mindful, the mindful walk, let's say down the street, taking yep. notice of the, right? And then the, um, the I, I guess you were, you know, from that study that you were sharing, the let's say um three positive things yeah making sort of like a diary if you kind of three positive things that happened to you over the course of the day you talked about smiling uh bananas and turkey yes uh turning off the ipad i guess that's a little mini shabbos every day yes and and then and then the whether it's yoga zumba mindfulness and intense Intensity. 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 Okay, good. Okay, great. I mean, there's so many. I'll just mention two more. Um, One is acts of kindness, right? Mm -hmm. So just like we know how important gratitude is and thinking of those three things we're grateful for during the day, it is supremely important to take an opportunity to uh, visit someone who's ill. During COVID, that's hard to do, but doing package deliveries or just even helping out a friend in a small way, those small acts of kindness, opening the door for somebody, um, you know, paying it forward at the grocery store when someone is $1.50 short or $15 short, whatever it might be. Those acts of kindness are thought to really also lead to life satisfaction and greater happiness. Um, and I'll just mention one more thing because, you know, a lot of people, especially during this COVID time, are highly anxious. They're very worried about various things. And when you look at anxiety experts, what they often say is that 95% of the time, the things we're most anxious about and that are consuming so much of our minds don't actually ever happen. 95% of the time, those things we're so worried about don't even happen. And then even if they do happen, 95% of the time, we know how to handle it way better than we think we will. We're much more um, armed with a toolkit to handle those situations. So just try to take a moment. My mom always says, always, always says, you know, the things we worry about the most are never the things that actually happen or very rarely. So take a moment to, to kind of let that sink in. And let that anxiety go to the side. And these different activities will really help you kind of um, alleviate a lot of that anxiety and worry. That's amazing. That's that's so, so helpful. Um, Oh, my God. I can go on and on and on. I just want to see if there's any other. um, All right. Tell me, lastly. Why is Hannah Senesh one of your heroes? <laughs> yeah. So Hannah Senesh was this amazing woman who was born in Hungary. She was not born, uh, she, she, was not, she didn't grow up in a religious home. Um, she's a beautiful poet, incredibly brilliant woman. She went to um, uh, Kibbutz Stot Yam, I believe, in Israel during the Shoah. Um, and she was in a safe place in Israel. Um, and then she joined the Haganah when she realized how awful 
the Shoah was getting, especially in her beloved Hungary. And so even though she was safe in Israel, she went down into enemy lines, I think into Yugoslavia. They caught her, unfortunately, very quickly. And they wanted her to reveal the code, which would have really put many, many more people in danger. And she, despite the torture and awful treatment, she was able to uh, hold back with the code. She ended up being killed, unfortunately, at a very young age. But her indomitable, indomitable spirit, her passion, her motivation, her deep, deep love for her people just always was such, uh, you know, she was, she's always been such a paragon of virtue for me in, in my mind of, of courage and bravery and, um, and passion. And so um, I love her song, Eli Eli, which many yeah. of you might know. Um, song. Yeah. She just, I always saw her as one of my She, she, she wrote that song? How does she? Yeah. She wrote Eli Eli. She wrote um, uh, A Blessed Match, a whole bunch of beautiful. And, and, what, and what were the circumstances? I'm just, she, I mean, she's, she's like a Wonder Woman, like a Jewish yeah. Wonder Woman. She went in herself. She was part of some sort of. I believe she joined a Haganah, and Haganah she went group, in right. with uh, with a group. And unfortunately, they they were captured much quicker than than they thought. But they were going to really try to help their um, Jewish brethren in Hungary. Um, and so the intention and the motivation were just so incredible. And then even with all of the the torture that she had to. Uh, endure in prison, she still would not give up her her wow. fellow uh, her fellow fighters and and the Jewish. She Incredible. saved so many people Incredible. in the process. By the way, just as an aside, I don't know how many of us realize that the state of Israel was created by people like this. That's right. But specifically, also trained by the British, because the British were concerned that the Nazis were going to come to the Middle East, and they allowed Jews to join the British forces. And there are people I've met who actually train, they're very old today, or some have passed, that were trained by the British. Now, they never fought. They weren't like Hanasenish that went into enemy territory, but they were, they were 30,000 Jews who lived in Israel pre the state, and they were trained by the British to ultimately fight the Nazis, but they never fought the Nazis. They ended up using it to fight either the British and kick them out during the mandate or against the Arabs who attacked after the state of Israel was declared. So that spirit of Hanaserish, your, your hero, Nava, uh, who is such an unbelievable hero of the Jewish people, is really, that's the kind of spirit that ultimately helped create the state of Israel that we have today that we're blessed with. Um, I want to thank you. I, I thought that was a, an appropriate way to bring this to a conclusion. Um, uh, because, um, uh, you know, you're really a role model and you're quite a super wonder woman for a lot of young Jewish women and just all of us, men and women together with the incredible work that you're doing with children, that you're doing on mindfulness. Thank you for all those great, great tips. And thank you so much for weighing in on uh, and using your expertise in psychology to help us uh, and help MJ participants learn how to navigate the dating scene. It's not simple. It is not yeah. easy. I thank you so much for participating and for coming on. Hashem should continue to bless you and your beautiful, beautiful family, Bliyayinara, mm -hmm. with just continued nachas from your gorgeous kids. And uh, you should just go from, from strength to strength.
Thank you so much. And, and right back at you with your beautiful family and all the incredible things you do, the amazing books you write and the ways you inspire and influence all of us in such a positive and wonderful way. So thank you so much for having me. And it's been wonderful getting to chat with you. Have a great day. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much.